Howdy, I'm Kate Kavanaugh, and you're listening to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we're laying the groundwork for our land, ourselves, and for generations to come by looking at the way every thread of life is connected to one another. Communities above ground mirror the communities below the soil, which mirror the vast community of the cosmos. As the saying goes, as above, so below. Join me as we take a curious journey into agriculture, biology, history, spirituality, health, and so much more. I can't wait to unearth all of these incredible topics alongside you. Hello and welcome to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast where we are laying the groundwork for something. I'm not always sure what it is, but we sure are laying the groundwork My name is Kate Kavanaugh, and it is a pleasure to be back on the weekly podcast bandwagon, and I have a really exciting episode for you this week. I had the pleasure of finally meeting Rob Kropfel and Jillian Lekewski when I went to the Old Salt Festival in Montana last month. And let me tell you, I have been following along their journey through Jillian's The Noisy Plume blog for what I think is 12 or 13 years, maybe even longer. And... So I felt a sense of kinship and familiarity with both Jillian and and Rob, who you get little peeks of on the blog, but I really deeply connected with them and found a sense of ease in conversation with the two of them that I, I could not have expected if I had anticipated it. And Rob and I found ourselves speaking a great deal about what it is to be shy and relatively introverted people that have worked to overcome a variety of challenges in life and really bonding over that. And that's something that we cover inside of this podcast that I really enjoyed because I think that... Oftentimes when I reflect on the last year or so of producing this podcast, I'm really struck at the fact that I am still here and talking to people as somebody who often struggles to strike up conversations and can be painfully shy and introverted. And yet this still calls to me this aspect of sharing stories and sharing conversations with humans that are doing some really beautiful work here in this world. And Rob is no exception to that. He recently left his career as a smoke jumper to go all in on his small garlic farm in conjunction with Jillian, where they are hand-growing the most beautiful garlic you've ever seen. And you'll get a little peek of this in the ad, but it is hand-grown. And they touch each each head of garlic at least eight times before it makes it to your doorstep. And they are shipping right now. So I just can't say enough good things about Sundry's Farm Garlic, which we talk about a great deal towards the latter half of this episode. I 
am back on the wagon, so you can expect podcasts coming at you every week for for right now. I won't make any big proclamations, but it's really important that I show up here. I think it's good for it's good for me, um, and it's such a pleasure to just sort of be here in these conversations with everyone and to experience this with you. I want to just put this brief reminder that if you are enjoying the podcast, if it is something that you are really connecting with, if you can leave a rating and review, that is a great way to help others find the gems and the stories and the lines of thought that we're exploring here on Mind, Body, and Soil. Little reminder that if you leave a written review on Apple Podcasts, I'm happy to send you a little piece of snail mail in return. And so to inspire that, I'm going to read a review from Our Gun. It's titled, How Did I Miss This? Somehow this podcast never crossed my path until just a couple days ago when I heard Kate on the Sustainable Dish podcast. I have since started listening to it nonstop. Kate has such an important worldview and poetic yet approachable way of explaining things and thinking about the issues our world faces. I am now hooked, grateful to have found this. I especially enjoyed her conversation with the folks making death in the garden. Oh, me too. Thank you so much, Argun, for that review. And for anyone else that leaves a review, shoot me a little snapshot of it on Instagram at Kate underscore Kavanaugh or shoot it over to my email, Kate at groundworkcollective.com, and I'll get a little piece of snail mail out to you so we can connect here in the tangible world. I don't really want to dilly-dally before getting into this interview. I so enjoyed my time with Rob. It's really fun when you just drop into easy conversation with someone. And so I really experienced that with Rob. I think this is just kind of a rollicking interview and well worth it. If you want a little bit more background on Rob, those of you that are longtime listeners know that sometimes I just dive right in. I've linked in the show notes an interview that Rob did with my friend Ed Robertson of the Mountain and Prairie podcast. And so that might give you a little bit more context or a little bit extra on Rob if you thoroughly enjoyed this. And I know that you will. Order some Sundries Farm Garlic, y'all. It's amazing. Some just arrived on my doorstep and it is absolutely stunning. The biggest garlic cloves I have ever seen, making it perfect for seed garlic or for storage for you to use throughout this year. We'll talk more about that in the interview that is coming right up. Here's Rob. Well, I mean, Smoke Jumping started in 1939 and there were years and years of we just suppressed every fire. I rookied at Winthrop, which is North Cascade Smoke Tripper Base, and they used to have the uh, the idea that, okay, we'd get every fire caught by 10 a.m. the next morning. So, you know, back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, every fire you jump, and most of the time in that part of the country, it's so thick, you just land in a tree, and mm-hmm. you repel out of the tree, you put it out. We So we did a fabulous job at suppressing fires. And, uh, you know, the repercussions of that are we had a lot of, fuels on the ground. Now, today we have tons of fuels because we suppressed so many fires. Yeah. And management has gotten a lot better at letting fires 
burn, particularly in wilderness areas or areas where there aren't resources that need to be saved. Yeah. And so, but it's kind of a catch up game. Um, we just went so long without suppressing fire that now our fires are really intense, really hot, do a lot of destruction, you know, kind of nuke the forest. Mm-hmm. And it's going to honestly take a while. We're going to have to have a lot of big fires and uh, we're going to have to change our policies where we don't suppress as many fires before I think we get in a more natural cycle um, for that. But in like the wilderness areas and areas, we're doing a much better job of not suppressing. Now, when I felt like my job had worth and was valuable, uh, were times when you are protecting resources like towns, you know, structures, people's livelihoods. And those are the times, you know, I jump a fire and it felt incredible. Like, okay, we're doing good. This is a fire we need to suppress because you're protecting this person's house. Yeah. The other spot, I think it's really important that we jump fires now uh, is the sagebrush habitat of the Great Basin. And that's for sage grouse habitat. And a lot of the jumping I did was in the Great Basin. And so almost all of our fires were in Nevada, Utah, Idaho, Eastern Oregon. And those were all for sage grouse habitat. Mm-hmm. And those felt really good because I'm an avid upland hunter. So jumping those to help protect the sage grouse because they were losing so much habitat. And if you want to go into that, that's because of our cheat grass and invasive grasses and they're just destroying sage grass or sagebrush. So jumping those fires was also really valuable because sage grouse do great if they have habitat. Yes. Where there's not habitat, they don't do great. And so we're losing so much habitat that every uh, every time I jumped a sage grouse, sagebrush fire, I love those as well. So and it's we're... kind of an... Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, oh, it's, go a, ahead. it's a mixed answer. Like um, there's parts of fire suppression today that I think we're doing a great job and are really meaningful. Like it's very meaningful and important to protect somebody's livelihood and their property. I'm all on board with that. It's really meaningful and important to protect habitats that are being uh, destroyed and can't be replaced. Sagebrush yeah. takes, you know, hundred years to replace. Yeah. Those are really valuable fires to jump. And we're hopefully as an agency and as an organization starting to do better at letting fire kind of play a more natural role in the areas mm-hmm. where we can. And great like areas for that are wilderness areas, Alaska, there's all sorts of spots. Yeah. Uh, but I think we're a long ways out from um, being in a more natural fire cycle that there was, you know, when pioneers first settled here. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of stuff that needs to burn and then start to get regrowth and then kind of let the fire cycle play out. Yes, that that was kind of at the heart of my question was how you felt about our disconnection from that cycle. And also, I don't know if you've read this, but there's this idea that early humans were moved across the landscape, not by food scarcity, but by kindling scarcity. And so they would they would move as they utilized a lot of the kindling that was in the area, it was sort of changing that fire cycle. Yeah, certainly in some areas that makes sense. Yeah, you know, if you ever just camp in one spot long enough for a public campground, it's hard to get any firewood. Yeah. Uh, so certainly in areas like in the prairies, I think that make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, it's interesting just thinking about it, especially as we approach fire season here in the in the late summer. Yeah, and I don't think of the East Coast as having a fire season, really. 
Uh, it's very rare because you're so all the deciduous trees out there. Yes. Uh, you know, they just don't burn like the conifers do out west. No, not at all. Though Eastern Canada this year has had a sort of surprising. They have, and that's an anomaly. That's, yeah, that's very unique. Yeah. Typically, yeah. you know, to have destructive fires through a deciduous forest, it just doesn't carry fire. It's ground fires, which, you know, just kind of take out the brush and burn the leaf litter, which is great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's also, we just have so much moisture here too, that that really yeah. shifts yeah, it. Yeah, a it's... lot of moisture. It's been it's been actually pretty fascinating to be here as the air quality has declined and to watch this sort of eastern perspective of fires play out. I was actually in New York City the day that New York City had the worst air quality in the United States because of the fires in Canada and listening to the the chatter that I overheard fascinated me coming from the west. I'm sure because in the west it happens every summer. Yes. I mean, you know, there's like a month pretty much every year here where you, you know, you can hardly see anything because it's our fire season and we have yes. huge fires. Yes. I'm good. Stepping back to the, uh, the fire, you know, letting it burn from a selfish, fun perspective when I smoke jumping, I love jumping wilderness areas and fighting the fires, mm -hmm. but yeah, they're, hmm. they're not necessarily needed. That's actually that's actually kind of a perfect segue for the first question I wanted to ask you, which I I was going back over your interview with Ed Robertson. And one of the things that I really pulled out of that interview was for you, this sort of love of being challenged and pitting yourself against certain challenges throughout life. And so I kind of wanted to start with this idea of where does that where does that start for us? I'm also somebody who who loves a challenge. And I think that there are early experiences that shape that desire to, to be challenged and to challenge ourselves. What are those early experiences, in your opinion? For me, or as I was listening to you? It, no, I feel like you have an idea of what early kind of uh, experiences can end up cultivating somebody who likes to take on challenges? Sometimes I think it's being a little bit of the underdog, that you have this idea that there is a hurdle to get over or a need to prove yourself, that there's an early chip on your shoulder that happens. And, and I might just be speaking for myself here. Uh, sometimes I think that there are <laughs> there are authority figures or the idea that somebody tells you that you can't do something. And if you have a sort of contrarian attitude towards things, it can take hold as a desire to really challenge a, a sort of normative structure or an authority within that space. And and again, I might also just be speaking to myself in in those examples. No, I think that's probably generally true. Um, and I agree with you that I've led my life and I've kind of gone from challenge to challenge, but I've really tried to think about, okay, why is that? I can mm -hmm. tell you I've definitely done it, but why is it mm -hmm. uh, is kind of the, the tougher question. And I do think uh, how you're talking about wanting to uh, prove yourself, mm -hmm. certainly in my family, my dad and my uncle, like, and I'm the last male crap fell in the lineage. Um, 
they had all sorts of adventures. My uncle was rafting the entire Yukon, you know, in the seventies with an inflatable raft he got from Kmart. And, you know, my dad had hitchhiked all over the U.S. You know, this is all during the sixties. So they had all sorts of adventures. So there certainly was like looking at the other crap filled males, like, Oh, I want to go out and live life. And, um, yeah, and try to live up to that. But I think there also was a part of me that, you know, I'm not going to say I was the most popular or loved kid at high school, but there, there certainly was a uh, part of me which you did want to prove to people that, hey, I could do these things. And a lot of things I chose, I don't think anybody I went to school with would have ever thought. Mm. You know, I wasn't like the athlete in high school. Um, so some of the courses I've taken in life, I don't think people would have predicted for me necessarily. So I do think there is a, kind of there's something satisfying about proving people wrong yes um, there is I do think I do think there's something satisfying about that there is there's yeah. sort of a, a having a force to push off of all I can think about is a kickflip when you're swimming that it's nice to have something to sort of push off of and to push away from and then I think it becomes something that's internalized, that you're no longer pushing against something, but you're working towards something. And I don't know, I don't know when that shift in challenging happens, but I think it happens for most people that appreciate challenging themselves. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, Try to think. Yeah, I, I don't know. Did you ever read Youth by Joseph Conrad? I didn't, but I've heard you talk about Joseph Conrad yeah. in interviews quite a quite a bit talk about typhoon and and typhoon and other yeah books. But, but youth was like one of the most influential books i read and that was like when i was 17 or 18 and you know the title's youth and it's a short book but it's all about like just taking life and living it to the fullest and just going like that youthful you know excitement mm -hmm. that uh and just capitalizing on that so i remember reading that book and then you know the example of my uncle and my dad um just being like, wow, I'm going to take advantage of life and just do as many things as I possibly can. So I do think some of the challenges I've undertaken are also have been connected to the, I don't want to have regrets. Yeah. So it's like, I have, there's so many things I want to do in life. Hmm. I've always, I feel bad for folks who sit around and don't know what they want to do. Yeah. My yeah. challenge has always been, I have wanted to do a hundred things yes. from high school on. Uh, it's like, how do I do it all? Like, I wish I could just do more than one life. Mm -hmm. Me too. If I could, you know, have more than one life, I would have one life just committed totally to smoke jumping and I'd become a base manager and run it. One just to farming, uh, one to being an engineer on a train conductor, you know, I'd be doing all sorts of fun things. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the challenges I've undertaken in life um, have been, I want to do, step into this next chapter. Yeah. And it's never been, oh, I'm going to leave this thing because I'm not happy. Most everything I've done in life, like my jobs in particular, I've absolutely loved. And when I've left, it's been at a place where I'm, I'm, I'm sad that I'm leaving uh, and people don't necessarily understand it, but I'm leaving because it's like, oh, I've always wanted to do this as well. And I'm mm. running out of time. Oh, so I, I try this. I, I was going to ask you what your your first step into adventure was after reading Joseph Conrad's Youth, but I really don't want to miss the opportunity to, the, to ask you when when you know it's time, when you know it's time to leave something that you love for the next thing, because I think that 
I think a lot of people struggle with having that internal clock that says it's it's time to move on. I like leaving when you're happy. It's like if you're a guest at somebody's house, you leave when they're still super excited you're there. You don't want to overdo your stay. <laughs> yeah. So I, if you can leave on a good note where everybody you work with, you're hanging out with or your friends are going to give you great recommendations and be sad you're leaving, that's such a better spot to leave than you know bitter and you've overdone it. Yeah. So I guess I would say, when you hit that peak of excitement and you're starting to come down the other side, good time to leave. Um, Love that. Somewhere in, in that that area. Okay, so start us off. You read Joseph Conrad's Youth, and how do you choose that first adventure? Well, one of the things I, I don't know if it was from that story, but at that same time in my life, I came to the realization that, okay, what holds people back from you know, living life, having adventures. And I came to this realization that if I'm okay with being lonely, not like it, I'm not saying I'm going to enjoy it, Yeah. but if I'm okay with it, like pretty much everything's open to me because the main thing that holds people back is, you know, they need a buddy to do with it. They need a friend um, because that's tough. They don't want to go out and just do things by themselves. So I had this realization that I need to be okay with loneliness. So the first thing I did was move to Alaska. That was right out of high school. And at that point, I was obsessed with fishing and started to get really obsessed with hunting. But I went there because I was going to study fisheries, work at a fish hatchery, and I always wanted to go to Alaska. So that was my first adventure. And that was a terribly uh, lonely time because I didn't know anybody. Um, <laughs> but like, I would have never done that if I had been afraid to go off by myself. And so that was a pretty profound realization that I just need to be okay with loneliness, not like it and not want it for my whole life, but comfortable just doing things on my own. Hmm. And that opened a lot of doors. Because hmm. pretty much everything else I've done from then on, you know, it's been starting over and yeah. And I think part of that, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, I just, now you got me thinking of a different concept. Yeah, I was go. just thinking Keep of going. my youth where... I was originally very, very shy. Up to third grade, I didn't talk to anybody. Like if you were to talk to folks I grew up with, my parents' friends, they would, they'd be amazed that I even am on this podcast or talk. You know, outside of my family, I didn't talk to anybody. But I had a uh, seven people in my family, four sisters. And within my family group, I was very comfortable and extrovert. Hmm. Um, and so... I used to always think I was an introvert, but now I think I'm an extrovert who um, is really good at being by myself. Hmm. And uh, yeah, so after third grade, I never talked to a soul. And then it somehow in fourth grade in my school group, like a, some switch was flipped and I became one of the most outgoing extroverted people at my school. And it was, I was obnoxious. Um, and I think what happened is, you know, it took me four years to get comfortable with the, my friend group, and then boom, once I was comfortable, it's like my family. And But outside of that school group, I was still shy. Yeah. And what I got a lot better with over the years was um, getting comfortable with people a lot quicker. Hmm. So, you know, then I, my outgoing side comes out way quicker. Do you think part of that is getting comfortable with yourself so that you have that anchor 
in your own personality, in your own head, that you can then go out and be gregarious within that space? Because we talked a little bit about being shy when when we were together yeah, in Montana. We no, totally. A lot of it's just, you know, building your own confidence uh, and, and just getting better. But kind of stepping back to challenging yourselves, I think that was one of the main first challenges I undertook. Mm -hmm. Because there are people, like I said, if, who I grew up with who still think I don't talk. Mm -hmm, and, me too. You know, to prove them wrong um, is satisfying. And I knew that was a weakness. So I was very specific about chat, like, addressing it hmm. so in high school i did speech and debate for four years you know all these things which were like out of character um because that was such a weakness that's an interesting thing too though is to to recognize a weakness in yourself and to want to strengthen it or to want to work that muscle to catch it up to the rest of things and i think that's a that fascinates me. Uh, I, I I have a little bit of that in me too. Oh, well, I think it's a great attribute if you could have that. And I, I hope I have it. My niece is uh, interning with us this summer, Julia, and she's 19 and she's incredible. Like her number one strength is exactly what you mentioned. For a 19 year old, she knows her weaknesses and she tries to work on. It. And just because of that, I'm like, Julia, you're going to do amazing in life. No, it's yes. such a rare person who's like actually addresses their weaknesses and isn't afraid to look at them. I think that comes with a desire to challenge yourself, though. I think they're they're those are part and parcel to me that a lot of challenging ourselves is overcoming or working on places where there's a weakness that we want to strengthen. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's connected very clearly to challenging yourself. Hmm. Um, I, I do think it's very connected to that. So you're in Alaska and you're getting used to the idea of, of being alone, not liking it, but of experiencing it and going through it because it opens up a lot more space for adventure. What happens Yeah, next? and I, I took it to the extreme. I'm kind of embarrassed uh, by this, but I remember being in Alaska and I never called my parents until Christmas. You know, so we'll have to like September, never talk to them. And that was only like to prove some point that I could, uh, I was okay. Mm -hmm. But I missed them terribly. Mm -hmm. But uh, so that was a little ridiculous. That's not a, nothing to brag about. That was, yeah. But anyway, I, did, I really was taking that challenge to the extreme. I like that you, I, I, I think but, it's interesting that you took it to the extreme. It said something. Yeah, hopefully I've matured a little bit since then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's but. a difference between recognizing weakness and wanting to overcome it and uh, and uh, making it worse for yourself. I, I don't I, I don't quite know no, what totally. word to use there, but I want to take a break from our episode to talk a little bit about today's sponsor, Sundry's Farm Garlic. Now, I know you're getting to listen to Rob's story in real time, but I actually think you might want to hear the rest of this little ditty. The garlic at Sundry's Farm is hand-grown. 
And I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be hand-grown because I believe that one of the blind spots of industry as a whole is a consideration of the hands that touch the goods that eventually come to rest in our own hands. As food and clothes and electronics and the everyday items that make up our lives traverse supply chains big and small, they do so largely without our thought. I just opened up a box of Sundry's Farm Garlic. I pulled out each hand-labeled muslin bag and opened them. I touched these giant garlic cloves. I brought them to my nose to smell them, and I could still smell the earth of the Hagerman Valley in Idaho lingering on their skin. I took one of the jumbo cloves out of the bulb and crushed it and took a small bite. From touch to smell to taste to becoming a part of my biology. Sundry's Farm Garlic passes through the hands of owners Rob Cropville and Jillian Lekewski at least eight times. Each bulb is handled as it is planted and then weeded, the scapes picked, the garlic harvested where it is then dried, trimmed, and shipped to your doorstep. They use soil amendments that are free of synthetic fertilizers and added by hand with consideration of each varietal hand-picked by Rob and inspected by the state of Idaho to be certified white rot free. The story of our food is also the story of the hands that plant and grow, that tend and care, that pick and ship, which is a part of the reason I'm so excited to bring you Rob's story today. Whether you're buying seed garlic or you're buying culinary garlic, expect varieties bred for both their size and flavor. Gigantic cloves of varietals like Music, Enchilium, Early Italian, Persian Star, Nootka Rose, Purple Glazer, and more in both hard and soft neck varietals. These are incredible whether you are looking to plant your own garlic this upcoming fall or you're looking to store some organically grown and beautiful garlic for your culinary adventures throughout the rest of the year. I promise that it is going to add punch and spice and earth and hand-grown goodness to every meal. If you are interested in picking up some of this incredible garlic from Sundry's Farm, go to sundriesfarm.com. That's S-U-N-D-R-I-E-S-F-A-R-M.com to order your seed and culinary garlic for the year. There's no code needed. You just have to be ready for some incredible hand-grown garlic to arrive on your doorstep. It is such an honor to bring you the story of some of the hands that touched this garlic as it made its way from farm to, hopefully, your table. Go to sundriesfarm.com right now to get yours. So what comes, you're working in a fishery in Alaska, is that correct? I worked at a fish hatchery. I went to Sitka, Alaska, worked at a fish hatchery and went to, there's a small, there was a small college. They've gone bankrupt, um, but was there Sheldon Jackson for that first year. Um, so worked at the fish hatchery, went to school there. And Sitka was, it's an island and there's 14 miles of road. And when I first went up there, the sun never shone for, I think, 35 days. Uh, so I'm not... It wasn't my favorite time in life. I, it was challenging and I loved the fisheries work, but um, I, I didn't 
I don't want to move there now. Yeah. Or I guess I actually I would be okay moving there. Let me rephrase that. I'm jumping ahead of myself, but uh, one thing I've learned from that experience and other experiences is whenever you go somewhere, just embrace the culture and you'll have a lot more fun. Mm. So if I were to ever move to Sitka or Southeast Alaska, the number one thing I do would, would be to buy a boat because that's how you get around and just embrace that side of the culture. And then I think it'd be tons of fun. Hmm. Hmm. I like Sorry, that. I'm a little off track there. No, no, I think that's great advice for, for a lot of different situations is to embrace the culture and have a little bit more fun. Um, tell me more about fishing and, and where Sitka, Alaska leads you and how this kind of leads into your work as a fish biologist. My first passion was fish at that time in my life. When I was 16, I also started hunting and bird hunting because my parents didn't do that. So I had to get a driver's license before I could pursue that. Hmm. But fishing I've been doing for a long time. You and your so dad fished together. We fished together, yes. Um, and so I thought my life was going to revolve around fishing at that point, which is why I went to Alaska. And then um, after that first year, I went to Montana on two different times and then went to New Zealand ultimately. And those were all like fish driven. All those adventures were because I wanted to go fish. So, you know, fishing took me quite a few different spots. And ultimately, I graduated after a non-traditional, like, seven-year uh, route through college. Mm. I also took, I took seven lot... years to, to yeah. meander through college. I took a lot of time off and did different jobs and different things. But um, ultimately, at the end of all that, I did land a job as a fish biologist in Arizona. And that was right after Jillian and I were first married. And that started my career or career, my first career job. Mm. Hmm. I love that. And I love that you had this, you had this thing that was driving you, that you wanted to fish, that you wanted to experience fishing and that that was kind of leading this sense of where you were adventuring in a lot of ways. Do I have that right? No, that's definitely correct. And at that point, like when I was in high school, my goals were pretty clear. I wanted to have like the bird, best bird dog in the world. By the time I was 24, owned a Jeep, and I had all these spots I wanted to go fishing. So I had some pretty clear goals. Yeah. Uh, I did get a kick out of in high school, like we, we were asked our goals to get up and present all that to the class. But um, yeah, so my goals are pretty clear at that point. And fishing was a big part of it up to I that point. I feel like baked into this too is teaching yourself skills. You know, you talk about at age 16, you teach yourself how to upland hunt and you, I assume that you really deepened your knowledge of fishing throughout this time as well. Yeah. I, and I think I'm terrible at asking for help. Um, and, you know, I take my hat off so many people today, like the, a younger generation, this is one of the strengths of like the more younger generations is they are fabulous at seeking people out, asking mm -hmm. for them to mentor them or to take classes. Uh, mm -hmm. I never did any of that. And I think it might go back to how we were talking about, um, and I'll be curious if you had the same experience and you were shy as well. I think I was so shy as a kid, like asking somebody for help or sales are not my strength. Mm -hmm. I, I hate asking for help. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just took a long time. Everything I learned was way harder than it had to be. Yes, absolutely. That that was absolutely the case for me. I found that in being shy, asking for help was one of the hardest things to talk to people about on a long list of things that I found difficult to talk to people about. 
Um, uh, and, and the desire too, for, especially when it comes to learning skills that I wanted to go in the corner, I wanted to get really good at the skill by myself and then come out once I had, I don't want to say mastered it, but once I had some, some mastery over it. I agree. That's my experience. Exactly. I am curious. Uh, how did you end up where you're at today, gregarious, hosting a podcast, uh, socially very confident with your background? <laughs> I don't know about that. Hmm. I don't know if I'm gregarious. That's for sure. I. I think that there was a lot of pushback for me that I spent. A recent. Let me start here. I recently heard a quote that how do we turn the wound of not belonging into an invitation of welcoming? And I spent a lot of time as a kid really not fitting wherever I went. And I was shy, which makes it even harder to fit in. But I was also kind of a, a strange kid. And I had interests that did not did not fit in with the rest of my peers. And well, give me an example of these interests. Oh, well, I mean, as a, as a kid, I really wanted to be a train engineer, actually funny that oh, you should yeah, mention yeah, that. That yeah. was, that was, that was really my goal in life, but I was also really, it's kind of a morbid kid. I was very interested in death. I, I, I saw a lot of death and I was interested in it. I liked to read. I wasn't particularly athletic and I went to a very athletic school. And so I think that there was that moment of wanting to push back against that. And as I got into high school, that really became, I wanted to find a space where I could talk to people and where I could get along with almost anybody. And I really put myself in a lot of uncomfortable situations in order to get to those places. And I think that's something that continued as, as I got older and as I got into butchery and talking to customers and learning different skills. And so I think a lot of that is what we talked about at the beginning, that sort of, that sort of underdog and, and wanting to prove yourself coming from the chip on your shoulder. Yeah. You saw a weakness and you decided to face it head on. Yes. That makes sense. Yes. And I enjoy it now. Like I'm really surprised. I think one of the things, even just in the last couple of years that has caught me off guard is how much I enjoy talking to people and getting to know people and their stories. But I would wager that you're probably pretty good at being by yourself. I am pretty good at being by myself. Yes. Which I think is a benefit, an unintended benefit of that, that shy you. Mm -hmm. You got mm -hmm. you you got comfortable being by yourself and okay mm -hmm. with it. Mm -hmm. I was also an only child and was alone a lot of the time, and so I got a I got a good bit of experience there too. You got the perfect balance then. Okay with being alone and okay talking to people now. I am now. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. No. Thanks for sharing that. I was curious. Yeah. No. I think I I I think that the the shy turned gregarious is a. I don't know how often it happens. And I think you were actually, when we were in Montana, that was one of the first times I had really had that conversation of what it means to sort of flip that switch. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I, and I assume talking to you that that would not be the case because I, I haven't met a lot of other people with that experience. 
there's probably way more out there than I think, but uh, yeah, it's interesting. Hmm. Where did we leave off? We were, you were teaching yourself skills. You were learning. Yeah, how to teaching hunt. myself skills. Um, I was making the point that I never asked for help. Mm, Everything mm-hmm. was self-taught. And I do admire people who could ask for help. Um, and, you know, and I think there is a value to just figuring things out. It's a much slower process. And there's there's a certain sense of accomplishment that comes from it. But it definitely slows the learning curve. It does. And it, one of the things that you and I talked about uh, on one of our calls was we we talked about that one of the things about teaching yourself skills and having to figure stuff out is that you do get this chance to problem solve and to troubleshoot in a way that really teaches you the edges of a skill uh, where you can yeah. really find those boundaries. You can find, I think, the why you do things a certain way by learning <laughs> why you don't do things a certain way. Yeah, no, definitely. You, you figure it out, but you waste a lot of time. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I was telling you, I don't know if I told you this, when I first started hunting at 16, I didn't have a dog and I was looking for quail mm-hmm. and I'd go walk around for hours. And, you know, a simple, you know, if you, you had the, if we had the internet, which we didn't back then, a simple search on like California quail could have told me the habitat where they live. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at that time, I didn't know anybody to talk to. So I just randomly walked. Mm. And, you know, maybe once every five hours, I ran into a, a, a quail. And that was a very slow process. But, you know, slowly I figured out, okay, they're more in the riparian areas. They're more in the brushy components. But it took a long time. I, but I, the- I did come out of it, though, with a, a profound love of it and appreciation And I think because it came so hard. I was going to say that too. This part of your story really struck me because I think it gave, and, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it gave you an opportunity to cultivate a lot of knowledge and intimacy of an ecosystem by just learning where quail weren't and where quail were and how to begin to read a landscape. Oh, definitely. Um, now I mainly hunt chucker, and I, it's the same thing. When I first moved to Idaho, I didn't have a clear idea. Um, but as I spent so much time doing it, now it just seems obvious to me. Mm-hmm. It's almost like an instinctual, where, yeah, obviously there's going to be chucker there. That's the, their habitat. And, or they clearly won't be there. And so once you get to a point where you're very competent on it, where you've done it so much, it, at times can be difficult to understand somebody just coming into it and how they can't see it so clearly because hmm. if i look specifically at chucker uh which is a, a partridge that lives in volcanic rock in the great basin their habitat requirements are so specific it's you know they need terrain escape terrain topography volcanic rock and anywhere yeah, we could drive down the interstate in the great basin and it's like they'll be there and there and they won't be there it's super clear to me but i didn't start that way um but it is interesting how figuring it out yourself, taking so much time, where it suddenly just becomes intrinsic. You just know the habitat of these critters. Uh, it, it, I, there's just a, I, I, a great appreciation for those critters. Yeah. And just understanding. And I think that's developed through that. Hmm. And of their landscape. 
Yeah. But it's not necessarily a conscious thing where it's like, oh, they're here and here. I can verbalize it. But at this point, it's just kind of a innate, they're going to be there. Hmm. Or they won't be in this other spot. I think in some ways that's even more interesting. I I was recently reading a book and it sort of posited that one of the things that sort of pushed along us as humans was this idea of when we're hunting, we're telling ourselves stories about the landscape that we're able to read a little bit of the past in what might have happened in a place, you know, and in just scuffs in the duff layer of the forest or whatever it is, and a little bit of the future and where, and where, uh, you know, some chucker might be. And that this sort of changed the way that our thought processes unfolded. And I think that there is something to reading a landscape and finding those stories. But what I hear you saying is that there's an even more innate sense of it that helps you understand an ecosystem and also the animal that you're hunting. Yes, there's a, there's a understanding and appreciation and I, it is certainly possible for an individual to love a chucker or an elk or whatever and have no desire to hunt. But when you start to understand that animal's habitats and their daily activities uh, to the level that you can be developed when you're pursuing them on a regular basis, it just, without even trying, it, it, it breeds this uh, love and of the animal and of their habitat and an understanding. Uh, that, that's hard to explain to other folks who, who don't hunt, just how deep that appreciation of not just the animal, but the landscape and everywhere they yeah. inhabit. Like my favorite, uh, growing up, I grew up in Northern California, which was, you know, it's, it's ponderosa and trees. And I thought I used to want to be a mountain man, but now I like the desert and the wide open spaces. And a big part of that is because of how much time I spend walking canyons and ridges looking for chucker, which, you know, is a, to most people, if you drove by on the interstate and you looked at chucker habitat, you would find it ugly and just stark and bleak. But now I find, I think it's the most beautiful landscape I've ever been in. And a big part of that is just, I've spent so much time in it and have such a understanding and have seen all the little tiny intricacies of it all the little springs and the lichen on the rocks and the unique little chucker droppings and tracks and what they're eating that it, it just there's a level of appreciation that's hard to cultivate if you don't spend so much time in one habitat looking for one specific animal I, you have a relationship to that place i mean you're building exactly. a relationship to that place yep and, you know, and I think you can get the same kind of relationship with maybe your farm, you know, or my farm here, where you're in it every day and you know all the intricacies and, and you appreciate it and you know all of its quirks. So I think it can, you know, it could be, it could be a much more micro, you know, ecosystem as well. I agree. But I, I Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I, but that is one of the, main main things i love have loved about hunting or fishing or pursuing any animal is just how in tune that makes you with not only that animal's daily patterns and their life cycle and how they live but also the ecosystem they live in 
-hmm. I was gonna say that I I feel like we're as a group not not necessarily you or or me but as as a group of people we're really disconnected from a sense of place and I think that this is really even just within the last 150 years the first time in humanity's journey that we would have been this disconnected from those sort of idiosyncrasies and nuances of a place that really help us feel connected and feel a sense of of kinship or of love for a place and i ask myself somewhat often how we can help people cultivate those relationships to place because that's what piques our curiosity for being conservationists or understanding biology or just having a sense of purpose within a place. And, and so I, I think it's important. And I think hunting and fishing and farming as, as a way to touch into that relationship are, are beautiful practices. I, well said, and I agree with you. Uh, you have to have a reason to be in that landscape, and it, or you don't have to have a reason, but it certainly helps cultivate what you're talking about there. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure. I mean, it'd be fun to talk to people who like to mountain bike or hike. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, I think they could probably develop that same level of uh, appreciation. But at least for me, I, I like a little bit more of a purpose, more of a specific target. Yeah. Were you, was this a skill that you were building all the while that you were smoke jumping. And so you're getting, I mean, you're getting a lot of, of, of different exposure to these ecosystems, I would presume, presume with, with both hunting and smoke jumping happening at the same time. I don't quite follow the question. I, I'm curious if you were cultivating the skill of hunting in the off seasons where you weren't smoke jumping and and sort of what smoke jumping brought in in terms of relationship to an ecosystem if what we're talking about is kind of a relationship to place um i think uh, i mean I, I, there's something that i don't even understand that would come with fighting fires in the west in terms of relationship to place does that make any sense it's okay if it doesn't i think i know where we're going with this um yeah, what fire brought to it is just another, like fishing, hunting, fire, backpacking, hiking, all these experiences just made me and helped develop and cultivate my understanding of various ecosystems. But because of my first love is fishing and hunting, you know, even if I'm jumping a fire, it's, oh, from the plane, looking down, oh, look at those ridges where elk might bed down. Hmm or that's some great chucker habitat, uh, or there's a lake over there. So I'm typically still all looking through it, through a lens um, of hunting and fishing. And when you jump a fire, one cool thing is, you know, you go to all sorts of random spots and spots that you typically wouldn't hike or go to on a normal basis. So you, you'd end up in these spots and I first look at it through a hunting perspective or a fishing perspective through that lens. And then once you get to that fire, your whole life becomes this really a micro ecosystem because you're just on this fire. And you know, sometimes it's a really big fire, but if it's a small fire, you might spend the next uh, five days on this two acre 
patch of timber that it's burning. And then you become very familiar with every snag that may fall down, every tree, every little portion of that exact ecosystem. This actually, I, I'm going to meander a little bit during this interview. I'm sorry. Um, but I, this brings up this idea because one of the things that I took note of when I was listening to you and Ed talk was the idea of cultivating focus in high demand situations. And, and I think hunting cultivates focus and I imagine smoke jumping cultivates focus, but I think that's an interesting thing, especially for people like yourself that have troubles sitting still and that have all of these different loves and interests. Uh, and I found this as a, I, I call myself a bit of a generalist that I, I, there are a lot of different things in this world that I enjoy learning about. And at times that can kind of pull focus out for me. And so I heard you say when you were talking with Ed, something about just how much those high demand situations really bring you into the present moment like nothing else they do you you nailed it that i, I think you're the same way we were talking about this i don't like to sit still and you know my wife and i we just had a daughter matilda she's six months and the hardest part about having a daughter for me is i don't like to sit around and just hang out with her <laughs> uh, and that doesn't sound great. I mean, I love her, but like I want to always be doing things. Mm -hmm. So when I am watching her, I'm not content just to hang out. I want to strap her on and try to like move wheel lines or sprinklers or do something, uh, which she doesn't always appreciate. So you were right on that, but that has been a challenge. Um, and I lost my train of thought. What was the rest of the question? Just how these high demand situations yes. begin to change your relationship to focus. Yeah, yeah. So my point was that is a weakness for me, but you are also correct in that a high demand situation leads to a hyper focus. And you know, the best examples I can think of that are, well, when you're jumping, actually parachuting, like the actual parachuting part, my niece, I told you is interning here. She asked me, are you ever afraid? Were you ever afraid? And no, there's no time to be afraid. Um, I'm super nervous, but I'm not afraid. It's like, it's just a task. It's like, okay, we're going to do this next task. And I'm going to just jump out of the airplane. And then I'm going to parachute and manipulate or steer to the ground. And during that whole process, you know, from jumping out to the ground, there's not even really excitement for me. It's just hyper-focused. All I think about is the next thing I have to do. I need to get in the door and make sure I put my feet out of the airplane and they don't get taken away in the in the wind and then i need to exit and have a perfect exit so my feet don't end up in the suspension lines of the parachute I need a perfect exit and then i need to have a manipulation mm -hmm. laser focused on where i'm trying to get to because i don't want to land in a tree or land some spot that i can hurt myself so it's incredibly focused and you have to be in that situation i don't know how else you do it and it is interesting because i'm not even really excited during this time it's just Focus, focus, focus. Mm -hmm. As soon as I get to the ground, I'm overjoyed and excited. Mm -hmm. That's where the excitement starts because I just executed it hopefully perfect. And then I'm excited and then I can actually have the energy and time to be excited. Mm -hmm. But I don't know any other way you could do that. Um, another great example of that kind of laser focus is I don't like heights. And you know, jumping out an airplane doesn't seem like you're high because you're so far up there. It's everything looks like a, you know, like a miniature. It doesn't yeah, seem like you're high. It looks like 
toys. Toys, yeah. A much scarier thing is climbing trees because you know you're close enough to the ground, you you can see what happens when you fall. So I did a lot of tree work, and one of the things we did a lot of, and I led groups doing this, was tree topping, which is one of the scariest things I've ever done. And you know, to top a tree might take me two hours, step by step with your spurs, moving up the tree to the top, and then topping that tree, you put a face cut in the tree, you do a back cut, and there's no room for air anywhere in here because if that tree sits back on you when you're 80 feet in the air, you know, or it catches your ropes, it's gonna take you out, you're gonna die. So there's absolutely no room for air. And that entire time, I don't think about anything but the next step. Mm -hmm. I now take this next step up, try to get to 40 feet, then 50 feet, then 60 feet. Then I just focus 100% on my first cut, then my back cut. And it's the exact same experience. As soon as that top falls off, then I'm overjoyed. And then I get out of the tree and it's like, wow, that's amazing. I lived. But uh, during, the during the actual experience, there's no time for excitement. And yeah, for me, I just have to be incredibly focused. That's the only I way I get through it. Has that process of taking things step-by-step step carried over into not high-demand situations? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, definitely in all, you know, in any anything which seems overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Like most recently, we just, um, myself and my sister and brother-in-law, my niece, trimmed and harvested, um, well, about 40,000 heads of garlic. And that seems absolutely overwhelming if you look at the pile. Huh. but you know, tying into, you know, how I have gone through most of life in those high demand situations, you don't look at the pile. You just take one garlic at a time, cut the top off, cut the roots off, clean it up, move on to the next one. And suddenly 10 days later, you're almost through it all. <laughs> let's, let's get to garlic. Let's, I, I'm curious to hear how this transition to garlic has sort of unfolded because I know that it didn't happen all at once that, that, you and Jillian got to the farm and when did this, when did this dream begin? Because I know that you were still smoke jumping for some time while the groundwork for this was underway. There, there were a lot of things I wanted to do in life. I still want it. And, you know, from high school a lot, I, there's a huge list of things I wanted to do. And I did a lot of gardening in high school and originally I wanted to be a vet because I saw a deer get hit by a car and wanted to be a vet. But I always loved growing, cultivating, nurturing things, whether it's fish or livestock or plants. I've always enjoyed that side of things. And so in my list of things I've wanted to do in life, I've always wanted to make a living farming, ranching off the land. I could be, it could be guiding, hunting, just some sort of make a living mm. off of off of the land that's hmm. always been in my list of things i've wanted to do why that relationship in particular making a living off of the land i don't know if i can tell you exactly why except it's a really romantic idea it is a like romantic some of the most idea. uh influential i think best books and you'll probably think this is funny or people make fun of me but like i remember reading like laura ingle wilder all mm -hmm. of those pioneer books and yeah. i still love those for kids books i think they're amazing but it's that whole like you know pa ingles it's getting too crowded. I want to go west. I want to forge my own survival off the land. Mm. And, and for some reason, that's always been very, I've loved that idea. Yeah. 
the homesteading idea, the, you know, living off of the land. Yeah. So that, that's always been in my list of things I've wanted to do. Um, and as I've gone through life and made changes, there's been some very intentional changes. Like when I left fisheries to go to smoke jumping, which was, I'm getting too old. I'm 28. I need to get back into fire because by the time you're 40, you're pretty old to be rookie. So I made that switch. And it was the same thing. Um, when we bought this farm where we live now and I was smoke jumping and I love smoke jumping, I decided, okay, I still have on my list. I want to make a living off the land. I don't exactly know what that's going to look like, but I need to start pursuing that. Is there a physical so, list just before you go on? Is there a physical list? No, there's no, list? There's no physical okay. list. This is in your, no, this is no in your head. Okay. This is my head. Okay. No, no list. <laughs> but yeah, when we bought the place we bought now and, uh, I started to like think, okay, the, the part of the intention of buying where we bought our farm we have now was to make this transition into this next step of things we wanted to do, which was make a living off the land. And, you know, because of resources being limited and the realities of life, we ended up buying where we bought and we could not afford a thousand acre wheat farm or a huge ranch. It just wasn't feasible. So I started to look at things I could do to fulfill that dream on the property I had. And that took me down the road of garlic and um, looking at crops that have a high income potential off a small acreage, but require a ton of work. I mean, there's always a trade-off. There's a ton of work, but you don't need a ton of acreage. And so it's something I could do on the property I had. And then I looked more into garlic and realized Idaho is one of the most restrictive states in the US as far as growing it. And that was a challenge, but it also has provided a lot of opportunity because if you can overcome it, you're in a unique selling situation. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, I wanted to make a living off the land. We had this property. I started to look at ways I could fill that dream. And this was in 2016. I was actually in Silver City, New Mexico, because I was down there fighting fires. And that's where I first started looking into garlic, ordered my first sea garlic, which was 200 pounds. And it took me from 2016 till now to build that sea garlic up, introduce some new varieties, and get to the point where I actually have the volume to legitimately you know, make a living and, and sell garlic as for a living. And part of that was just starting off small. like. This last year, just my sea garlic alone, I'm holding back is about twenty thousand dollars. You know, if I were to go out and buy it, yeah. Now, there's no way. Like, I couldn't have just gone out and bought that initially. So I had to no. build it up slowly. And honestly, it's a it's a huge blessing that we didn't have the ability to do that because I would have destroyed it all and had huge losses. Mm. Because it's taken eight years to try things out, develop the seed and actually get to the point where I can handle and successfully grow garlic on scale. Uh, I needed to grow 200 pounds into, mm -hmm. you know, a thousand pounds. I needed to take that slow route or we would be in big trouble. It would not have worked. Well, and I think this gets back to the idea that not only are you taking on a big challenge, which I think making money off the land is is a challenge. I think it it was for homesteaders and I think it is now. Um, but there is also, again, this idea that you're teaching yourself a skill, which is 
how to grow garlic and how to sort of read the relationship between garlic and the ecosystem that you're in and to identify some of those those places where you're doing things right and where maybe you're doing things in a way that doesn't work very well. Yes, there's been a lot of things I've messed up on and done <laughs> a lot better. And, but that's, I love that kind of like problem solving and um, developing systems that work. Yeah. And especially as I've gotten larger and larger, a huge set of challenges I've run into with growing garlic is how do you upscale? You know, it's the same thing with meat production or anything. It's as it's easy if you have one pig to butcher or a hundred heads of garlic, you know, you can do things the absolute perfect textbook farmer's almanac way. But when you start upscaling, unfortunately, you can't do how grandpa said on a large scale or you'll never get it done. Yeah. And so that's been a lot of my challenges is how to still grow mm. amazing, large, top quality garlic and also grow enough to, to feed the family on a large scale. Yeah, I, I, I want to dig into the specifics with garlic, but I don't want to leave this opportunity to talk about problems of scale, because I think that this is so much of uh, what farming as a whole faces as, as one of one of the big problems, especially in, in sort of smaller scale, whether you're raising livestock or you're growing garlic, you need some scale to make it financially viable. Yeah. But with scale comes problems that you can't always anticipate and a need for systems that are going to take you out of some of those those very small solutions, uh, whether that's how you dry garlic or whatever that is. And so I'm just curious as as kind of a broad stroke, if you have any thoughts on what it means to scale and to scale well while still maintaining integrity. That's the challenge because, you know, we could look at large, large commercial scale agriculture and there's some problems and it's done to scale. From a selfish perspective, it's decimated a lot of our upland habitat. So there's a lot of problems with it. But also the reality is you have to make money. So like garlic specifically, when I'm talking about going to scale, like there's certain things I can't compromise on. Like my customer and the garlic I want to grow has to be organic. It has to, you know, have no artificial, you know, no pesticides, no herbicides, it has to be just natural fertilizers. Mm. You know, it wouldn't work to do it any other way. And my customers wouldn't want it. So like I have to stay true to my like what I'm trying to produce, which is top quality, organically grown, sustainably grown garlic. I have to stay true to that. But there are other areas. So like an example would be. I could save myself a ton of hassle if I put a pre-emergent herbicide down and then sprayed with a um, like broadleaf herbicide mm. or something that doesn't affect garlic. That would be amazing because weeds are one of the biggest challenges with garlic. It doesn't compete well and it sure. ruins your bulb size. But again, that wouldn't be staying true to what I'm trying to produce. So like those are off the table, but those would sure make life a lot easier. So like the areas I can change and uh, have had to like problem solve are things like how I plant my garlic, how I dry my garlic, how I cure it. Because there's a lot of wise tales. And this is with anything. I'm sure you could give me all sorts of examples in your industries you've been part of. 
that say like specific to garlic, oh, you have to plant it, the pointy end of the clove up by hand. There's no other option. And you know, that's great if you're doing 100 heads, but when you start to do a large scale, you kind of have to think, okay, we got to punch holes, throw them in quick, or, you know, there's mechanical planters. And you have to start to sac like make some compromises on some things. Um, or like drying garlic, the classic approach would be you hang it all. That's great again if you aren't doing a lot, but when you're doing it on scale, I don't have space and can't afford a 30,000 square foot warehouse to hang all this garlic. So I have to trim it beforehand and then use racks and come up with other systems that work just as well, but work with the volume. And again, none of those type of things I'm talking about are in conflict with the vision of producing a sustainable, organically grown crop. Uh, so it's lot, those aren't in conflict with that. But if they were, then there's an issue. And then I'm not staying true to my vision of what we're trying to do. Yeah. I I love this aspect of staying true to a vision and being really, really honest to that vision. And so what, when you initially set out to do this, and as you're, you're kind of scaling up and beginning to get to this place where you can hold back that much garlic, what are the foundations of that vision? And, and how, how did you come to them? Well, the foundations are, there's some specific foundations to Idaho as well, which we can talk about a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I want to talk about but, that too. But to grow, a lot of it had to do with what I appreciate. So I appreciate easy to work with garlic, with big cloves. That's delicious, easy to work with. Uh, so, you know, my first varieties I was looking at were large clove hard neck varieties that, that uh, you know, are easy to work with and great for making sausage. You know, it's like a quarter or bigger, you throw it in there, a piece of cake. You don't have to, you don't have to spend all this time yeah. like peeling little tiny cloves yeah. and getting fussy. Yeah. yeah. So my original vision was what do I like? And then that has expanded into what other people have, you know, chefs have told me they would appreciate and also into some of the varieties which store really well. So somebody can, you know, get garlic for an entire year. But originally my vision started with, okay, what do I want to grow? I want really large garlic that can be sold you know, as seed for people to plant, or they can eat it. It's easy to work with, and it's a delicious variety. That's what I wanted to grow. And then how do I want to grow it? Um, I love, again, stepping back to kind of upland habitat. I love upland habitat and dirty farms because that's what creates that. Um, dirty so farms? Dirty, dirty farms are like there's weeds and all sorts of different, like hedgerows aren't cut. Yeah. yeah. Those are fabulous for pheasant and everything else. Yeah. Uh, I love that. I have, that's, we have, a, we have a dirty farm. Yeah. You're great for upland habitat. It's fabulous. <laughs> so looking at how do I want to grow garlic? And first of all, my wife would never allow it and my customers wouldn't want it. And I didn't want to grow it this way. Like a commercial conventional growing practices weren't going to work. Um, so instantly it's like, okay, my customer base, my wife, and I don't want to grow garlic that I'm having to pump all of these artificial fertilizers into, and I don't want to be using glyphosate and other herbicides for a whole host of reasons. And, uh, how do I grow this garlic in a way that is sustainable? And, and I could do that. And that led me down the road of, okay, 
I need to be doing crop rotations to prevent pest buildup and fungus buildup. Added benefit of all the crop rotations are my, my legumes and all my other crops, my rye crops I have going are fabulous. The wildlife love them. So that kind of hits mm. that little mm. point, personal point of I like creating habitat for wildlife, especially up in birds. So they love it. Yesterday, there were two pheasants in there just when I was out there looking at my cover crops. Um, my pigs love all the crazy cover crops I have. They don't even mind the weeds. Pigs, fine weed, all sorts of stuff my horses won't eat. They'll eat that down in a heartbeat. They love it. So it also mm. takes care of the feed issues for my livestock. So it's 100% sustainable and I'm not having to import any food feed for my pigs or my other livestock. Mm. Um, so yeah, down that road of and then of down that road of cover crops, and then developing ways where I could grow the garlic. And again, the biggest challenge has been weeds outside of you know, you know pests and whatnot, which we talked about with the cover crops. It's how do I challenge the weed, address the weed issue, and that's honestly an issue I'm still figuring out. Yeah, uh, because it's it's mechanical. There's mechanical weeding. There's a lot of plastic mulch used, which is highly effective, and a lot of organic farmers use it. But then you also have a lot of plastic mulch, which you have to get rid of. It's also a hassle, and it's also plastic. Yeah. So yeah. I've been done a lot of experiments with how to um, to to deal with the weed issue. That's that's my big thing I'm figuring out right now still. Yeah, weeds are weeds are one of those things that. Uh, but I mean, this is I I say that the reason that we raise animals is because I don't have to weed a goat. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big issue. And I really respect that you're you're taking the tact of trying to find ways that don't involve as much plastic or as as much waste. I don't think I realized what a sort of closed loop system that you had built, that there was a lot of symbiosis, both in terms of creating wildlife habitat feeding the rest of your livestock and growing this garlic, that it it has some stacked functionality to it. That's the goal. We're trying to develop that. Um, that's definitely the goal. The rotation, I mean, with the garlic, the, the, the rotation is critical because pretty much everything that affects garlic are fungal diseases primarily, nematodes as well. But um, it just builds up in the soil. So you need to move it every year. Yeah which, you know, just allows you when I'm trying not to use synthetic fertilizers, if you have a cover crop where you're adding all the nitrogen to the ground through legumes and you're adding organic matter through rye or whatever, uh, building your soil, it just goes a long ways. And it also, luckily, corresponds right with the wildlife habitat I want. I also take one cutting off of it a year for just for my pigs. Um, sure. It, yeah, so it works. It works out. Well. Yeah, it works. And out it's very fixing. Well. It's fixing nitrogen. I. It's fixing nitrogen. Yes. I love that you're using fertilizers that are not synthetic, and I. This is actually a sticking point for me that I don't think a lot of people consider. I think it's really exciting when people are using natural fertilizers as opposed to all of the things that we use that have sort of fascinating supply chains uh phosphorus in particular has oh, yeah, yeah. has a, a lot of limitations and a lot of issues i actually just um my my friend james and i have been reading um and obsessing over this book called the devil's element uh about the 
the supply chain of phosphorus and the sort of paradoxical relationship between uh, we're running out of phosphorus and all of the runoff is causing these algae blooms. And so this is something that I wanted to highlight too, is that you're using, you're using natural fertilizers. We are, and it, that adds its own challenges, especially my nitrogen fixing crops. I can get a, a fairly high nitrogen con like levels in my soil just through that. But, you know, particularly alfalfas and clovers, you know, phosphorus is what they do suck up and mm -hmm. it'll add it. So that is, you know, that's that's the tough element to get through yeah. your cover crops. Uh, so like this is the fertilizers we do use, and I think I sent this over to you. We use blood meal, we use fish emulsion, and we use kelp. Those are the three we use. Um, and, you know, the challenges with those are just, they're expensive and the scale you have to use that. I mean, blood meal is 10% nitrogen, but, you know, you could go get um, liquid urea that's 33%, or you can even get up to 40% nitrogen. Sure. Super, you know, super, uh, you don't have to use a lot of it and very efficient. Yeah. Sure. You know, so when I, and the way I fertilize is I inject it, all my garlic's on a drip system. Hmm. So there's drip lines. Yeah. I have three rows and there's two drip tapes between the, the rows and I have an injector. So I'll, you know, take blood meal and mix it all up and make a slurry. Well, I, I add blood meal in the fall just to the topsoil and then the fish emulsion, all liquid, I'll add to the, my injector and inject it into the drip system. But again, the volume I have to use to meet the demands is high compared to if you use a synthetic. So that's where the challenge is. Think about up. that. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, cause a fish, emulsion is, you know, you can get 3% or 4%, but most of it is like 1%. Yeah. It's not a lot. So you, it takes a lot. Yeah. And, then and that's another investment. Sprint. Yeah. Another investment. Yeah. Yeah. That's another investment and another, uh, uh, another space that I think is unseen by people yeah. that aren't growing garlic or that aren't in a farming space. Yeah. You know, the, the nitrogen fixing crops, and that's a huge part of the benefit of those is the, the higher those levels we can get just through them fixing nitrogen saves a lot of money and effort mm -hmm. trying to eject using blood meal and uh, yes. fish emulsion and kelp. Yes. And you're just utilizing what a plant does naturally, which yeah, is to, exactly, to exactly. break those nitrogen molecules and pull them out of the air. Yeah, yeah exactly. I want to go back to why Idaho is so specifically special in this and what it means to be in a quarantine zone and what a challenge that's represented to to get to this space where you're growing garlic in Idaho specifically. I didn't know this when I started the uh, or thinking about growing garlic in Idaho. Oh, you didn't know this when you started? Oh, I, well, when I first started looking into it, I did not realize this. And maybe going back to that embracing challenges and wanting to mm -hmm. overcome them, there are a lot, when I started looking into it, where I live in Idaho is it, it's called the Allium Quarantine Area, which is all of the Snake River Plain, it's Eastern Oregon, uh, it's most of Idaho. And the Allium Quarantine Area is an area which is regulated by Idaho Department of Agriculture um, to make sure that the disease white rot and other diseases never enter this area. And the reason that is being looked into and they don't want to allow that in the area is Eastern Oregon, this part of the state. The onion industry is a very large, robust industry here. And white rot can devastate the onion industry or garlic industry. If you get white rot into a field, 
you could never use that field again. It's 60 years, it's, it stays there. So it's it's totally, you could never use that field again and it will devastate a crop. So because of that, this area, this quarantine area, and because the onion industry is so robust here, the state um, only allows garlic to be grown here for seed if you're gonna plant it, if you become a certified and inspected grower. And what that means is my initial seed, I had to buy from somebody who's already been inspected within this area. Any varieties that are not grown within this, within this area, and I want to bring them in, and I brought in three varieties last year, I have to have shipped directly to the Idaho Department of Agriculture, and then they take them over to the University of Idaho, and every single head is then tested at my expense, it's $4 a test, um, to make sure it is disease-free and white rot free. That way it's guaranteed the seed I'm starting with is totally healthy, disease-free, does not have white rot. In addition to that, every year my field is inspected. So the Idaho Department of Agriculture comes out, they inspect it, they pull up any heads that look bad, they then take them to the university and they test them and to see what is going on. At if your cost? Any white rot? No, they, well, I do pay for that, yes, but that's not yeah. a ton of money. Okay. That, that's a small. It's bringing the new seed in, which used to be incredibly cost prohibitive mm -hmm. because you used to have to pay for every single clove you're going to plant, $4. You know, so if you're trying to plant 100 heads, $400 just to get that seed. Um, Last year, a couple of changes were made where now they just test because of DNA testing, which just was developed. They could test just one clove off of a head. So, you know, if you have a head that has 10 cloves, they test one, that still leaves you nine other cloves you can plant. So that was a huge change and has definitely helped. But because of all these restrictions, um, there's not a lot of seed varieties available in Idaho. And the only people who could sell to other people within this area have to be certified. And so those were the challenges I came into this. You know, when I first started, I didn't realize like, wow, I can't just buy seed. And there's all sorts of seed dealers out there, but they can't ship, they won't ship to me. They can't ship to me yeah. because it's illegal for them yeah. to ship to within this area. So I had to then go to the few other people and there's only really three people selling on any scale within the whole state, um, buy seed from those folks and then go through the hassle of which we just talked about of bringing new varieties into the state, having them tested, and then voila, they can then be offered to people in Idaho. And one of the advantages of, you know, this whole thing is, and I didn't realize this once I overcame all the obstacles. Well, first of all, I'm in a unique situation where there's pretty much three people selling who can sell within Idaho, but also for anybody outside of the state, there is a, level of testing and quality assurance that you just can't get anywhere else because nobody else is mandated by law to have their garlic tested and checked every single year and have who has had to have every new variety tested in a lab. So there's this quality assurance you just can't get. And it's just intrinsic to the way I have to grow garlic. For people that may not know, I want to just briefly cover why white rot is so insidious and why the state of Idaho would even go to these lengths to prevent it from spreading in, in, any, in any farm. White rot 
once it's in the soil, the main reason is it just is there forever, practically forever, 60 to 100 years. The spores will live in the soil, and then you can never plant any allium, which is onions, garlic, leeks. It'll destroy any of those crops. Um, so because, you know, then there are other fungal diseases which can wipe out a crop, but you could use fungicides. There's ways to eradicate them, and mm -hmm. it's not, you know, a lifetime of, you know, a couple of years and you can move on. But white rot specifically just lives in the soil for so long and is so devastating that the state in Eastern Oregon decided it's not worth taking any chance of having this in this area. Because if it did arrive here, it could destroy an entire industry. Yeah. So they just, they decided to just go take it to the extreme All and in. say, no, no white rot tolerated period. And, you know, every so often, like last year, there was one farm in Eastern Oregon that they detected it and that entire operation was shut down and all the equipment sanitized and everything, all garlic destroyed. Everything was destroyed mm. um, to prevent it from ever getting in this area. Yeah, I, I, so, I, it's it. I mean, it's it's kind of amazing to to create to create that space where it's white rot free, but it, I. I, I kind of like that you went into it not knowing that and having this this layer of challenge that actually ends up yeah, adding a lot of value. It does. I mean, it ended up being a lot more challenging in that there are all these varieties that I wanted to buy. Just buying garlic was very challenging. And then all these varieties I wanted to bring in and it's just the challenges of that. So there were a lot of challenges, but like you said, now, you know, I'm in a unique niche market and there's mm -hmm. a, I like to think I would have been growing outstanding disease-free quality garlic either way, but now there's this credential inspected by the state and yeah. tested on my garlic that has a value to people if they don't know me or trust me. It's like an outside credential. Yeah. <laughs> uh I want to talk not just about clove size, but also about flavor. We've kind of talked about this, and I, I do want to stress this because I think clove size both means because garlic is a clone of itself, right? So, and and I, I want you to talk about that. So each clove is going to produce, when you plant that clove, it's going to produce a head, a bulb of garlic with really big cloves as well. And so it's great on both the level of buying seed garlic, but it's also so amazing when you're in the kitchen. And like we said, you're not fussing over all those little bits and having to peel and you can just get stuff in food where you want it. Yeah, that, that's one of the major benefits. <laughs> yeah. And you, you nailed it. I mean, garlic is a clone um, and it is fascinating. Most garlic has lost all its ability to reproduce via seed. Hmm. Um, there are mm -hmm. two varieties of garlic, like family groups. There's hard neck and soft neck. And a hard neck garlic has a center stalk, which is a flower. It's the part that would flower. And so they call it a hard neck because that when you dry it, that becomes hard. Mm -hmm. And a soft neck has totally lost the ability to flower. So it doesn't even send a flower stalk up. Mm. Almost all commercial garlic that you were to buy at a grocery store is soft neck. Oh, because okay. It's all soft neck because. Soft neck is a lot easier to grow on a large scale commercially. Mm. It could be machine planted a lot easier and it stores much better. Mm. It will store up to a year versus a hard neck may last six months. Okay. Um, and so it's just a lot easier to cultivate than a hard neck, but it has totally lost even its ability to flower. 
Yeah, and I, so, I want to go back here. Garlic was one of the first cultivated species of of plants um, and cultivated around 5,000 years ago, just for people that are listening. And so has lost its ability to self-propagate and, and needs us to do that outside of outside of wild garlic. Yeah, and, you know, and wild garlic is still primarily propagating through, you know, clones, the, the bulb, if you leave it in the ground, will swell up and it'll split. And then, you know, each one of those hmm. new cloves turns into another garlic. Yeah. Um, okay. But they're clones of themselves is the key. And even going, getting a little off track, but, you know, the, the varieties that do flower, most of them don't create any seed. They create little bulbi, which are like tiny little garlic cloves, which are, again, just a clone of themselves. Hmm. But because garlic grows from a clone, it's all, it's a clone of itself. You want to, for seed, if you're going to garden with it, or grow it, you want to plant really large, healthy cloves because a healthy, large clove creates a healthy, large garlic. If you plant your little spindly garlics, you're never, ever going to get a decent head of garlic. You'll get tiny garlic. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, and when I start talking or discussing seed garlic versus garlic you eat, it's all the same garlic. It's just the the big garlic, the best looking garlic is what you want to plant. And that's primarily like what I'm trying to grow are large garlic that can be used, like you said, for ease in the kitchen. That's great to work with, or is also up to quality and has a high enough standard that you could use it to plant. And it's super flavorful. And you have brought in flavorful. all of these different, yeah. all of these different varietals to let people explore more of the differences yeah. in flavor and and there is a huge variety within garlic you know taste profiles and you know if i'm honest with you it's one of those things like there's foodies and people who are really into wine people who are really into garlic they will swear one variety is you know far superior than another but it's all a very nuanced like it takes a, a cultivated tongue to really know like what you could tell the differences is like this one's hot this one's not hot this one's more earthy. This one's a little more mild. That's your average person. But, you know, the top chefs of the world, they have like Carpathian, Spanish Roja, some of these hardneck varieties. Um, they swear, you know, they are seeking those because they have the most complex hmm. taste profile that they desire for their cooking. Um, and typically the hardneck varieties are your gourmet varieties, the varieties that your top chefs in the world want to use. Hmm. They have larger cloves. They tend to have a more complex uh, taste profile. Like a lot of your garlic maybe in the store. First of all, most of those are a silver skin, which is a family group. Um, tends to be kind of sulfuric tasting and hot, which is, there's not a lot of complexity to that. Hmm. Most of the hard neck varieties will be a lot more nuanced, earthy, some spice, but not overpowering. And, and they just tend to be, uh, they're, they're what, they are what is preferred by the top chefs in the world. And so as I've been developing different varieties, and this is another unique thing about garlic, is garlic like wine takes on a flavor and a uniqueness of the ground it was grown in. I was so, gonna ask about this. Which is very unique. So like, the first year you buy seed garlic, it'll do, you want to buy the best seed garlic you can. It'll do well. But if you hold that back, the very best, 
over time, it will start to adapt to do better in your growing conditions hmm. as, it, as it adapts. And again, the, those top tasters out there who go to all the garlic tasting competitions and be like- Oh, there are garlic tasting this. competitions. Oh yeah. Like oh, okay. this farm <laughs> Carpathian has this unique flavor versus the same variety grown somewhere else. I cannot tell it. I cannot get, get that extreme or tell you a difference. Mm. I could definitely tell a difference between some varieties are really hot, some aren't, some are more mild. Um, and so that's where I tend to help people with like the taste profile, especially chefs are like, okay, how spicy do you want? You know, more along that level. And mm. or what are you looking for? You want it easy to work with uh, garlic, that kind of thing. I, it's interesting that it sort of adapts to its environment over each successive because you're taking, I mean, you're taking clones that are the same as the seed garlic that you you started with, right? That you're propagating. And yep. then those are adapting to the environment and the soils that you're in. And I would also presume that because of the practices that you have, you're getting more Fred Provenza would call it phytochemical richness, more of those secondary compounds uh, within that garlic that are going to give it some of that flavor of place of ecosystem. Yes. Yeah, exactly. The unique compounds in your soil are going to be imparted on that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'm also, you know, vicious. Like I go through my garlic and anything that is struggling, I, I call Like I'm very particular about getting rid of anything that doesn't look good as soon as I see it. Because mm -hmm. you, you don't want that even around. You just, it, it's like calling animals or anything. You, you do not want that for future stock. So you destroy yeah. it. Yeah. Hmm. So. I, it's an interesting process of adaptation for people that are going to grow garlic for themselves. You, how long do you feel like some of that seed garlic, like how many generations or how many seasons do you feel like that seed garlic takes to sort of find its way into a new place? Uh, you'll start to see an improvement after your first year, but over time, three or four years, it's really starting to improve. And, you know, I sell seed garlic, a lot of seed garlic, yeah. but honestly, if I've, and somebody who's looking for seed garlic should buy the absolute best garlic they can. And that's the biggest cloves. And most important thing is you want to make sure it's disease free because mm -hmm. that's how diseases of garlic almost always get introduced is from bad seed garlic. So it's, again, romantic to go to your friend and just grab their garlic, but ideally you want to, it's an investment. You want to start with the yeah. best, cleanest, biggest garlic possible. Start with that and you look at it as an investment. You plant that and ideally you hold it back and you never come by for me again. Hmm. You know, luckily for me, a lot of people have just eat it all. They come back to me <laughs> year after year, but really if you're trying to grow the best garlic possible, hmm. you would buy seed garlic, and then you'd hold your own seed back. Yeah. And, you know, some people run into the, a lot of times it happens is, you know, even if you buy great seed garlic, but you don't weed it or you don't water it, mm -hmm. it's not going to perform well. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you don't store it correctly, following it, I would presume as well, especially when yeah. you're talking about uh, wanting to start it for seeds eventually. Yeah. Yeah. You know, normally you harvest in July or August, depending on where you live. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to be planting in October, November, somewhere in that yeah. range. So yeah. you have to store it. And then, you know, if you're trying to get garlic for the full year, then you have to store stuff long-term as well. One thing I really wanted to talk about was hand-grown. And as we were talking about this, you mentioned that that you touch 
that garlic at least eight times before it reaches somebody else's doorstep. And yeah, I thought probably, that was incredible. That's probably a conservative estimate because every garlic, like here's a garlic in here. This is Carpathia, you can see. So you'd have to take this, break it apart. Then you'd have to take the individual clove. So the first time is, you know, you harvest it. Then you take this. Then you're going to break it apart. And that we do that, there's a group of us that do that. And then you have to hand plant it. And then as it grows, like my niece and I, we weed it every morning for two hours, all of May and June. Weed it. And then the hard next, like this variety, which has that hard center, you have to pick that stock off. Then you have to, at harvest time, actually hand pull everyone, then pick them up, put them on the trailer, then take them to the station where they're trimmed, where the tops are cut off, the roots are trimmed, then they're sorted, then they're dried, then they're resorted by hand again to clean up, then they're grabbed, and then they're finally shipped off to somebody. So, and, and again, when I was talking earlier about crops that are worth a lot of money on a small acreage, there's always a catch, and the catch is those crops are a ton of work. That's why that's why they're worth money yeah. is because of the work is the labor and you know you have to pay for the labor and, and that's garlic it is one of the most labor intensive crops you can do i think that this is this is something that i always want people to see more of are the the hands that touch our food and and where that touch happens how many times that touch happens as it journeys from farm to table as it were because i think that this is is something that is very obscured in the way that our food system works now is that we don't we don't see the people and we can't imagine the process that it takes to move food from farm to table and i think that that helps us better understand what an investment food is both in people and in ecosystems and and also in our own health definitely and you know, having grown garlic and, you know, raised a few animals and whatnot, it's, when you do it, it's, it's hard to imagine when you see some of the prices in grocery stores, how anybody makes money. Yeah. Like when you actually know the effort and time that went into growing something. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about, like, when, when folks understand what goes into grow something or to raise something uh, and to get it to market and you understand how the effort suddenly the five dollar price tag seems like okay that's not over that's not too much yes um, and i think it, yeah, go, go ahead, ahead. I think that helps us better understand where some of those prices are coming from or why we would even spend more on food why we would consider it the investment that it is no exactly and and, and i'm just like anybody else i don't want um costs to be prohibitive and so expensive that people can't afford them. But I think you've probably run into this with your butchery and I've run into this with garlic. I'm honestly figuring out if I can make this work yeah. um, just on a financial level. Is it worth the effort and work? Yes. And the reason I haven't quit is I don't like to quit things, to be honest with you. I don't like to give up on things, but it's a lot of work. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, this year I'm, I am going to evaluate at the end of it and be like, I, hopefully that was worth, worth the effort. Yeah. I think this is, uh, this is a common question that has been coming up uh, amongst 
everyone that I talk to that raises food, that grows food is, is this worth the work in terms of whether or not it's, I guess we could call it financial sustainability. And I mean, that's the question that we're asking with the butcher shop this year. Does, yes. does, does this work? Does this even make sense? And I think part of helping it make sense is helping everyone understand the process behind it. I think people understand the process definitely. You know, I, I think most people who gawk at prices or um, they just don't understand what went into it, like you're talking about that, mm -hmm. you know, on an hourly basis. Well, like a couple of years ago, I figured out my hourly wage and it was like $2 an hour, but that was when I was still scaling up. Like you're not making, you're not doing but there's a lot of other benefits. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to come across as a complaining. Like I love growing things. Like I said, making a living off the land, even if it's not a lot of it and an hourly rate, it's super fulfilling to actually yeah. just be like, Hey, I'm making this work. Uh, there might be easier ways to just get cash, but like I'm making this work and that's super rewarding to be able to have something that was hundred percent grown both my own hands is very satisfying. Mm -hmm. To have a great product that I'm proud of and get to go out and talk to people and see them get excited, that's all awesome. And I'm sure that's the same reason you have your butchery still going is all those same reasons. Yes, and I also don't like to quit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. There's an element of persistence in it. But I, I do think it's good for folks to realize that if anybody wants to start growing sea garlic to sell, I will talk to you and 100% encourage them. I Never try to view anybody as competition. I encourage everybody to, to follow their dreams. But I also would be honest that you have to decide, is it worth the effort? Mm -hmm. and, and I think if you're not taking a lot of worth out of what I just talked about, growing something that is 100% from your own hands, making a living off the land, if that's not driving you, yeah. if you went into it just from a fiscal perspective of I can make X amount of dollars, it's, it won't be worth it. You have to have yeah. other motivations. Yes. And any of this stuff we're talking about. Yes. And I think, I think some of the beauty, I, and, you know, tell me if I'm wrong here. I mean, I know that for me, I get to spend a lot of time outside. I get to spend a lot of time problem solving. I have a sort of diversity of things that I get to do on the farm as somebody who gets a little bit bored if I'm just doing one thing. And so there are other benefits to me that are baked into this. No, I, I yes, I love the challenges of, figuring out problems. Like an example would be, we're talking about, we've talked about weeds. This year, in the last couple of years, I have had rows with straw mulch. I've had rows with plastic mulch. I've had rows that I just hand weed. I've had rows that I use a tine weeder, which is a mechanical weeder. Those are all experimentations. Like, okay, here's this big problem. This is probably the biggest time suck in my operation is weeding. And I'm not going down the herbicide path. So let's do experimentation to figure out what can yeah. work. And that's really rewarding and fun. Yeah. Absolutely. I have this kind of lingering question as somebody that hunts as much as you do. You know, when we talk about making a shift from hunter-gatherer societies and into, into agriculture and farming, you see a, a big decrease in leisure time. Agriculture is to toil, it is to work, and, and hunting and gathering is a very different space than that. And I, I'm just curious if you have any opinions therein, since you do a little bit of both. I'm very worried about that exact thing. Uh, when I, my, 
one of the best times of my life was Julie and I sold our place in Pocatello. We had a house before we bought the farm and we just rented a little house over in this area. And I had no critters other than the dogs, wasn't growing anything. And I think I, you know, hunted 130 days that year. You know, it was wow. amazing. All I had to do was do hunt. Yeah. It was incredible. One of the best times of my life. Um, and when I was smoke jumping and that's it, that also gave me a lot of freedom because that's only in the summer and that I could do my passions in the winter. Yeah. Um, I, but no, this is a lot of work and also having a daughter now takes away from that. So I'm still figuring that out because I love my passions, but there's not as much time. But I mean, one other thing I guess to add on to that is most everything I've done in life has also kind of been geared towards also facilitating the things I'm passionate about. Yeah. And all the bird hunting and hunting is winter, fall time. So mm -hmm. my smoke jumping worked with that. Garlic, I plant in October. And then from October till May, it's pretty much a hands-off operation. It's mm -hmm. the one downtime. And then from May through October is crazy. But it leaves that window open. For you to explore passions and to continue. For me to explore passions. Hunting, to continue yeah. fishing. Yeah. And now to to bring Matilda into those things yeah. as well. But I mean, if I'm honest, I am worried about that exact thing. Because I've done a pretty good job of always of getting to put a lot of time into my passions. But you're right with the agriculture and the farming and then having a daughter. There may not be as much time. So I figured that out. Okay. I was just, I, that, thank you for giving me that perspective because I was, yeah. I was curious how that kind of washed out. Um, yeah. I, it's funny too. I mean, talking to you, it, 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 there are both seasons of life, right? These seasons of these different things that you want to do and also seasons for it to happen just on a, an annual basis that you have a farming season and a hunting season, but that you've also had a fish biologist season and a smoke jumping season and a farming season on, on sort of a bigger scale. And I, I just, I appreciate that about you. Well, good. I know you've had quite a few seasons. As well. <laughs> yeah. well, I like to try to do all of the things that are, you know, percolated in my, in my brain to do throughout this, this short life. Unfortunately, we need more time because there's a few more seasons I'd want to do as well. But. Yeah. Um, as we begin to wrap up, I, tell me tell me if I've missed anything. And I also want to know how you're balancing having a daughter in all of this. Still figuring out the balancing the daughter. <laughs> uh, like I talked about, the toughest part for me is uh, she always wants to be with you, which is also a great thing, but it's also I like to be doing things. Mm -hmm. So she'll she'll be excited to be doing things here yeah, here yeah. shortly no she'll be super excited and i'm super excited to get her to the point where she's running around i call it the training phase because i have a lot of dogs and mm -hmm. i do a lot of bird hunting you know mm -hmm. where you can start to they start to develop into a helpful companion i'm yeah. very excited about that and also i'm just trying to just embrace though like you're talking about different seasons of life you know, the, the, my roles have to change a little bit. I'm aware of that and okay with that. Uh, that I may not get to be out as much as I used to be. But trying to figure out ways to make it work. Like this year, we're doing, Jill and I are doing our, an elk cut in September. We're going to take the horses in for 10 days. 
but my sister's coming in and I'm going to carry Matilda in and my sister's going to be a nanny for 10 days. So that'll be fun. So we're kind of just having to think about different ways to do things. That's amazing. So you're taking her in with you, but yep, it's about 10 miles with some help. Yeah. 10 miles back there. So my sister and Jillian um, will take the pack horses and ride in and then I'll just hike in with Matilda, you know, in a carrier. Yeah. And then uh, go in there. My sister will be set up to babysit, which will be tons of fun. She's super excited. And, you know, but we made some changes. Like that's the September archery hunt. Um, you know, we made the decision not to do the rifle hunt, which is late October because of weather. You know, it could be much more extreme later in the year. Sure. It um, makes sense. And I hope I'm putting Matilda in a backpack and hiking around to go out bird hunting with Jillian, you know, let Jillian hunt. Because I, I love just to go out and watch. I don't have to necessarily be the person hunting. Mm. I just like to go out. And I love yeah. taking people out. So we'll hopefully get her out. Yeah. And I, I presume taking the dogs out as well. Yeah. The dogs. Yeah. Dogs are a big part. Did you have a perfectly trained hunting dog by the time you were 24? I didn't touch back in on that. Not 24, but I had, I certainly had an outstanding dog. Farley was my first uh, hunting dog. He was a German oh. trainer pointer when we were in Arizona. And he was like, a he's dead. He's passed away. But was um, he on the blog early, early, early on? Probably at the very beginning, yeah. uh, he was still alive back then. Yeah. And so he was my first, I guess I was 24 when I got him. So he was probably like 26 by the time he was a champ. Okay. But yeah, I took him and entered him into AKC tests and worked on his master hunter and other things, which is a waste of, well, I shouldn't say that because people might be into it, but I found it to not be beneficial for what I was doing, but it still was fun just to get the credential. But I'm, I'm just a hunter. I'm not like a computer. I don't compete in things, so I just mm -hmm. need a dog that can hunt really well. But yeah, he was an outstanding dog. I had him in Arizona. It was some of the best bird years in recent history, those years I was with him. So as a puppy, he just got exposed to, you know, we could go on a walk and he'd have hundreds of encounters. So when you're trying to make a bird dog and a pointed dog, that goes a long way. So if you could get a young pup into lots of birds, you have a great bird dog. So Farley was a really good dog. And I was also really hard on him. Like, you know, first parent would be. Mm -hmm. So he was a very, uh, he was a very compliant, strict. Yeah, he, he did this. He was very compliant on everything. And it also had tons of experience. So it made him a great dog. Since then, most of my bird dogs have been a little more disobedient. <laughs> as I've relaxed a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I think that there's some beauty in, in the ways that we, we relax over time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too. Far, he was a great dog. Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, yeah. I was just curious if you had kind of checked off those, those major boxes. Well, the one I haven't ever, well, I did have a Jeep, but I haven't really had a Jeep. And that's always been a burr in my side. Yeah. Is, uh, well, I still getting, is it still bothering you? Oh, yeah. I'm getting, my next vehicle will be a Jeep. <laughs> Two-door Jeep, not like four-door, but I had, I ended up getting a Tacoma, uh, which I still have, and it has 340,000 miles, and it just won't die, and it's my hunting That's rig. So the I, good, I mean, I, I've got a forerunner sitting out there that has 280,000 miles on it, and that's, that's the good, I don't want, I don't ever want that car to die. I know, but I, I when I ended up getting that at like 28 or whatever, um, I'm like, okay, we're going to Jeep when this, to replace this when my hunting rig dies and it's still going both doors don't work ac doesn't work 
you know, all this suspicions fall to pieces, but the thing just keeps going. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm very abusive to it when I chuck her hunt. So until that dies, I'm not going to have a Jeep. Okay. So you've checked off everything but the Jeep. <laughs> yeah, way behind on that one. Yeah. Way uh, Rob, what have I, what have I missed? What have we left out of this conversation? Are there any other places you want to go? I don't think so. There's plenty of things I'm talking about, but I don't think you've missed anything really. Yeah. Or no. just anything that's like percolating on your mind that you, that you want to share, whether it's about garlic or otherwise. Well, let me think about that for a second. Yeah. Take your time. There's no rush. Well, I mean, one thing I do, I have been thinking about as far as uh, when we were, we were talking earlier about your butchery and the garlic and trying to make it a living at it. And, you know, kind of this concept and Jillian, I think, first brought this up is like, I'm always dreaming and challenging myself for the most part, mm -hmm. but trying to balance that with, okay, when is enough enough? Oh. Like, when is it okay just to say, okay, um, yeah. I'm satisfied where we're at. And I don't need to be mm -hmm. looking for the next thing or trying to become bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it's like related to garlic. It'd be like, okay, at what point am I just satisfied? I don't want to expand. I've just reached the mm -hmm. point and we're happy with that. And that's a good, mm -hmm. a good spot. And I don't think that necessarily comes naturally to me because I'm always trying to move, challenge myself to the next level. Mm -hmm. But I do think, that, yeah, I've just been thinking about that concept a lot. I've been thinking about this a lot, and I think there are, there are two things baked into what you said, and and one is something that I don't hear enough in business, which is when do we decide we're at the right scale and reach a plateau? And I think that one thing about you know what we could call the corporate organism is that it believes in growth and perpetuity. And anybody who spends time in ecosystems the way yes. that you do, the way that I do, knows that that's, the, that's not the case, that you reach a point uh, of carrying capacity, that you, you, you reach a point where, where that, that cycle is going to tend towards burning or towards decay. And so that's, that's one space of that. And then there's the question of when is the right time to quit, especially for people that don't like quitting? No, I... I think that's a good, yes, a very good question is when do you actually quit? And I don't, I don't know the answer. I'm just so bad at quitting. I never have. It's like the reason I made it through rookie training and everything hard in my life has been not that I'm a natural athlete or gifted at things. I always said the only strength I have is I just keep trying. Yeah. And, you know, and most jobs I showed up to, I could always, cause I have always had outstanding references, but I'd show up to a job and you could tell the boss who ever hired you there you could tell looking at their eyes were like oh really this guy's not quite what we thought he was going to be we thought he was amazing and you can kind of tell like they're not they're not overly impressed and then a week goes by a month goes by two months go by and other people have quit or had issues and i'm still just working as hard and then pretty soon like my only strength is that i keep going and i don't ever i just don't quit and i keep and trying perseverance Perseverance. I, that's like what get, got me all my good references with that. I just day, mm. two years into it, I'm still great attitude, same attitude I had the day I went into it. That, that's what's gotten me through. And that was totally my rookie training for smoke jumping was not my physical like ability. It was that, well, I'll just be, I'm not going to stop. You're going to just keep running and get yelled at and not stop. 
You strike me as a person, you know, and even when you were talking about going step by step in smoke jumping or in in rappelling down a tree or topping a tree, that at the end, there was all of this joy. And one of the questions I've been asking myself when it comes to quitting, and one of the questions I'm going to ask you as somebody who seems like a, a joyful person, right, that you have access to this idea of joy, is when the tables and and it's not always joyful right like i don't want to paint this picture that there's there's always joy but i think there's a point at which the scales where that has become too depleted and that there cannot be joy or a sense of thriving right whether that's in life uh, i hate to couch it in terms of financially thriving but when we're talking about business i think that has to be one yeah. slice of the pie I, I think you're right. When it's not joyful anymore, you may have to reevaluate. Like my wife, Jillian, she's she's done really well in this concept of, you know, enough is enough. And so that's kind of why I've been thinking about this is, you know, in relation to garlic. Okay. I like to think, okay, if I grow X number of pounds like this year, I think that's enough. It's something I can handle and I don't need to be bigger than that. So Jillian, my wife with her businesses, and she's dabbled in lots of things from making jewelry to modeling to photography to writing all sorts of things that she's been successful in most of them but i've been impressed with her where she's decided over time like you know what i don't need to have all of this and she's letting a lot of the things go like her photography work and some of her modeling work and she's just said you know that's not really i never saw saw those things it's not what i want and i'm just satisfied with what i what i do have you know, the foundation of her business, which is primarily making jewelry. So she's mm -hmm. cut back on a lot of things and she's done a fabulous job of saying, hey, I don't really want to outsource my work and have it mass produced. I'm just satisfied with where I'm at. Mm. And she's cut a lot of things, which were exactly what you're talking about. More stress than they're worth. And at the end of the day, were they really bringing joy? No, probably not. Mm. And so she's a great example for me and probably you like, okay, um, as my garlic business increases when is it when am i just satisfied yeah and so i've tried to kind of set a goal based on you know jillian's example of you know when when am i satisfied i don't want to you know be the largest grower in the u.s or idaho i just want to be able to make it decent living and take pressure off jillian so she doesn't have to produce as much and have a sustainable farm that's all yeah yeah. I think that's a that's a really beautiful thing to be able to recognize enough in a culture where it seems like we can never get enough. Yeah. Uh, uh, that is a that is a true skill set that uh, one of one of many that Jillian has. Yeah, no, she does a great job of that. Yeah. Great. She's a good example. And that's why seeing her example, you know, thinking, okay, what is enough for this garlic thing, particularly when I put as we talked about, it takes up a lot of time too. Yeah. And, and what and what meets the needs and when when am I satisfied with it? Yeah. I think too, you know, at the end of of that podcast with Ed, you talked about doing honest work. And I think that there's there's an idea both of the integrity with which we we approach our work um and a sense of honesty both with the work itself and with the land, but also with ourselves. And so one of the things that I know that I've been doing in this season of asking when is enough enough with the butcher shop 
is having a sense of of honesty um that the same honesty that I hope that I've approached the work with and also having that honesty of like okay well when when is enough enough yeah you don't one of the challenges I think you would have especially with the butcher shop is when other people are dependent on your business yes like for their livelihoods yes. because then it's it's not you're, you're not thinking of yourself it's like I don't I maybe you're not even making any money off of it you're losing money but like if you shut it down other people are affected and I know a lot right. of people who are very successful in business they, they they don't want to walk away because of the people that are dependent on them yes and, and that's what I think is extra challenging when you have a business like you have where people have come to depend on it mm -hmm. it's a lot easier for somebody in my where I'm at, where I have it, other than some seasonal help in my knees, uh, you know, I don't have people depending on me. Yes, I, I, that I think we actually would have closed prior to this, um, had that not been the very thing. And, and I have to say this too, I think it's a beautiful thing in business to have a sort of ecosystem of cooperation that you are you are building these relationships and that there is some interdependency just like there would be inside of an ecosystem and so while it certainly makes this decision difficult i think it's made the journey really beautiful no yeah great I yeah just as it. a yeah yeah just as a just as an aside um and i i do think that because i think that and as a sort of last question for you, I think one of the thing, hard things about doing the farming and the homesteading is that you're kind of out there alone. Like it, there isn't that sense of community. Um, and I've actually been thinking about this a lot, right? There isn't this sense of having a community with which you're sharing some of this work. And I think that's very unique to this time place in human history. Yeah, it could be a little lonely and I, you know personally i i've had a very fortunate life where all my smoke jumping career it, it's like the experience a lot of people have in college you've got best friends all around when i smoke jumped i always said i had 60 best friends all the time <laughs> i loved it best friends with me all day long every day that i'm working and then in the winter i do my own thing but people are stopping by and i always had best friends so switching to what you're like farming or more rural lifestyle most of it's alone time doing your own thing yeah and i do feel fortunate and like we talked about earlier kind of that introverted quiet side of myself when i was younger mm -hmm. i think a benefit of that is i love hanging out with people but i'm okay with doing my own thing and i take a lot of uh I, i'm okay with doing my own thing and take a lot of worth out of just going out and figuring things out, hunting by myself, gardening by myself, growing things by myself. So I'm okay with it. Yeah. But yes, the lack of community, the, the hardest thing about not smoke jumping and doing what I'm doing is the lack of community, for yeah. sure. Yeah. It was an interesting space to be in. And it, we've talked a lot about that just on the farm that it's a, it's a lot for, it's a lot for two people to, to manage and, a, and it's kind of unique not to have so much in the way of community that we might have had even just 150 years ago yeah yeah kind of talking about like uh when is enough enough jillian and i have also talked about 
you know, our lives would have been so much simpler if rather than buying this farm, we had just bought a little house up in McCall, which is where I worked. And I just kept smoke jumping as a career. And that's what we do. You know, mm -hmm. we have a townhouse and dogs and I go to work. Jillian does what she can and raises Matilda. Like that, there's a simplicity to that, which mm -hmm. is at times tempting. And there are times, if I'm honest, we're like, you know, maybe we should just sell everything and mm -hmm. go back to that life. It'd be so mm -hmm. much easier. Mm -hmm. We just can't let, I, at this point, I can't let myself do that. I don't know why. I just don't want to quit. And there's also a ton of worth and fulfillment from yeah. growing and creating all my own food. And Oh yeah. I mean, we, we've had projects. those conversations. Like what if we had, what if we had normal jobs? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, whatever, yeah, exactly. whatever that means. But I think that part of challenging, I know that part of challenging myself has been seeking a different sense of purpose and fulfillment, that that is part of the challenge, the big, the big challenge, not these micro challenges, but the challenge yeah. of, of packing as much can as I can into this life, this, this one life that I get yeah. to do all of these things that I find fascinating is I want to challenge myself to have purpose in that. Well, that's, a, I think everybody's looking for that. Yeah. If you get out yeah. of purpose, it's a purpose. It's yeah, pretty, pretty profound. And I, I yeah, I love, I love, love where I'm at. Love. There's a, there's a real sense of self-worth from having my own little ecosystem that I get to help create and cultivate. And, and like I said, that was a life goal. So, and maybe it will just, you know, I'm not going to be so uh, presumptuous to say I'm going to do this forever. I may decide that at some point, like we're talking, it, enough is enough and it's time to do something else. But mm -hmm. at this point, I'm loving where we're at. Well, it's it's been wonderful hearing about it and, and just kind of getting some of your Rob wisdom, I'm going to kind of <laughs> call it. <laughs> Um, it's kind of what I wanted out of you. You've had such an interesting run with things. And so I really appreciate you sharing your perspective on life as it were. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's fun chatting. Yeah. Um, we will have links, a couple of different things. We will have links in the show notes for, I mean, people aren't going to find you. They're going to find the garlic and they're going to find Jillian, but you are, you are wonderfully absent from social media. Um, and we're also embarking on, this will be, uh, when this is released, it'll be the second week of sort of telling the story of your garlic from my perspective on the podcast in a series of, of, of eight little, eight little stories that you've been so generous to, to sponsor me and sharing. Oh, I'm excited to get to sponsor you. Well, I, I I'm super excited for you. Because I, I don't know, just run it, you know, doing what I'm doing and seeing all the effort you guys are trying to do and to live this life we're living, to try to come up with a way that is true to yourself to actually financially make it work mm -hmm. is a challenge. Yes. And I can, so I am overjoyed to get to try to be one of your first people to pay to advertise on your podcast because I love what you're doing and I want other people to hear what you're doing for me and to be knocking your door down to try to have you advertise for them. Cause it's a great, honest way to get some value out of the effort you're putting into it that actually, you know, pays the bills. Yeah. Well, 
Thank you. Thank you for your oh. your investment in the podcast and in me. And it's just been really fun. Um, first ad comes out tomorrow that I'm just, I'm really excited awesome. about okay. it. Well, good. Um, I'm excited to hear it. So we'll have links to all this good stuff in the show notes and everything we talked about. And I'm just really appreciative for both of you and looking forward to the day when we get to spend some time up there in Idaho with you. Perfect. Excited to get you out. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. If what you found resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts? This act of reciprocity helps others find Mind, Body, and Soil. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, that's K-A-T-E underscore K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for the clips from their beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.